You are listening to audio from Riverside Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit riverside.church. Hi, Riverside. I'm Andrew, in case you didn't know that. Uh, And it is really a blessing to gather here today uh, to pray, to sing songs of praise, to sit in the stillness of God's presence, to come to the Lord's table, to drink deeply of the wisdom of God revealed in Scripture. So uh, as we do that, let's take a moment to be still and pray as we dig into this passage that Miriam just read for us. Lord, we thank you for your presence among us today. For being near to us. For speaking to us, Lord, through your word, in prayer, through song, through the encouraging words of sisters and brothers. And as we come to your Scriptures today, Lord, may these words of my mouth and the meditations and the thoughts of every one of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, well, the last couple times I've stood up here to preach, to teach on Colossians, it has been these glorious, huge, big picture, high theology, high Christology, Jesus-centered, Jesus changes everything in the whole universe, the gospel is bigger than we can even imagine sort of stuff. A lot of that. So if you love that stuff, that's what you've gotten the last couple times I've stood up here. Uh, But I I acknowledge that passages like that, that lean into how unfathomable and indescribable the good news of Jesus is, stacking images upon metaphors upon more images, in an attempt to put into words these incredible ideas, I understand that that's not necessarily everybody's cup of tea. It is mine. Um, So today, we're going to get into something that's a little bit more nitty-gritty. A little more nuts and bolts, a little bit more this is what it looks like in our daily lives sort of teaching. So for those of you who are into that sort of thing, like how does this affect my life, then hopefully you will be blessed today. To be clear, I actually like that kind of teaching too. But um, <clears throat> So we're going to lean into, into Colossians today, and it's going to maybe strike you in a new way today, um, I hope. So we're going to start in verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. So, as a pastor, I'm contractually obligated to ask this question. Do you know what the question is? What's the therefore, therefore? I have to ask that question. Did you guys, have you heard that joke before? Oh, okay. That's why nobody laughed. Great. <laughs> But it's pretty straightforward what the therefore is therefore. It's, it's about Christ. It's all about all that stuff that we've been talking about these last few weeks. Since he is the one in which we live, since he is the one in which we are rooted and established, since he is the one in whom we are baptized, in whom we are forgiven, in whom we find our salvation, therefore, therefore, that's what we're going to talk about today. It puts things in perspective for us. The first thing being put into perspective is the idea of judgment. Do not let anyone judge you is the first few words of this text. Do not let anyone judge you. And that can be complex because the word judge is used a few different ways in our world and in the, words, in the world of the New Testament. So 
one could feel like we're being judged anytime someone offers a word of correction to us, right? You ever experienced that? Somebody offers a word of correction to you, you feel a bit judged. Judge much, friend, right? Um, Have you considered doing it that way? Or, you know, that might be a great idea. Some people, and perhaps that impulse exists in all of us, may be really quick to say, don't judge me. Anybody ever said that? Or at least thought it? Who are you to judge me? Right? Anybody ever thought that? I know I have. Come on. It's, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, yeah. But this is basically a social application of the idea of judgment. What it looks like in social situations to judge one another. None of us like to feel judged in social settings, right? It's, it's not, it doesn't feel good to be judged in social settings. But I also don't think that that's primarily what this passage is about. Because there's a far more serious form of judging that is possible that happens. Uh, we might even use the word, instead of judging, we might call it condemning. You may have heard that, right? A deeply moral judgment of somebody's character or even their standing with God. When you judge somebody and say, you are not right with God because you believe or say or do this, this, or this, right? It's a much more serious and moral form of judging. And it appears that the judgment being dealt with here in Colossae involves people saying that if you do not eat or drink the right things, if you do not observe the right religious festivals in the right ways, if you do not celebrate the new moon and the Sabbath in particular ways that we believe are sanctioned by us leaders, whoever we are, then you are not right with God. It appears that is the sort of teaching that is going on in this Colossian church, that your status or relationship with God is in question because of the way you practice or do not practice these very specific things. And the things listed there are not controversial in the world of the New Testament, certainly in the world of Israel. They've been observed by Israel for centuries, food laws, what you eat and what you do not eat. Annual celebrations, new moon festivals, that's in the Old Testament. And certainly, of course, the Sabbath is something that we know is a teaching that comes from the the Old Testament. But again, the Colossians are largely a Gentile church. That means that they're not from the people of Israel. We've already gotten the idea that there's some people in this church, some folks who are likely a sect of Jewish mystics who are acting as enforcers of some really very specific traditions that is not acceptable to Paul and Timothy. The way that they are enforcing them is not acceptable to Paul and Timothy. They in no way, Paul and Timothy, they in no way want a theological stumbling block to be laid before the people of a young, fledgling church that's just getting started. Hence the strong encouragement, do not let anybody judge you. It's important to Paul that these people in this church do not let this other small group judge them, condemn them, say they are not in good standing with God. We continue to need this teaching today, right? In what ways do we allow perhaps our traditions, the way we've always done things, and even the way that we've consciously said that we're going to do things with great thoughtfulness, but those things become essential requirements for the church itself or for the people that we are around. I mean, Riverside is a pretty casual, open-handed, and beautiful space, but surely even we draw some lines in sort of random places, and we turn non-essential distinctions into essential requirements for faithfulness, right? 
So more details will emerge as we keep going, but we've got to keep going, okay? Verse 17, let's go. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. And that's talking about the new moon festivals, the Sabbath, the laws, all that. These were a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. A shadow of the things that were to come. Now what Paul's talking about here is the, res- the specific requirements being held up by those Jewish mystics in the group. They're likely all requirements that are outlined in the Torah, purity laws, annual festivals, Sabbath. They're not bad things in themselves, these requirements, these things. To practice them is not a bad thing. Observing them is not sinful or rebellious against God. So why is Paul so fired up if it's not sinful stuff, if it's not bad stuff? Because they have turned what is what he describes as a mere shadow into a yoke or a weight or a burden on the backs of the people. Like, think of the way that Jesus talks about the Torah in Matthew 5. We talked about this a few months ago. He explicitly says, Jesus says, he explicitly says that he does not come to condemn, eliminate, or abolish the law, right? Jesus said that. But he does come to fulfill it because every word of it pointed to Jesus from the beginning. Every word of the law pointed to Jesus from the beginning. The Common English Bible offers this really insightful translation of the verse. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The body that casts the shadow is Christ. These are a shadow of the things that were to come, but the body, the real thing, the actual thing that casts the shadow is Christ. How's that hit you? Kind of hit me pretty hard. And perhaps that's what fulfillment looks like. It's a way for us to understand quite a few difficult passages in the New Testament that wrestle with how Jewish and Gentile Christians will live together and practice faith together as one new family of God. And everything in the law, all of its requirements, all 613 commandments and their wisdom are precious and beautiful and strengthen our souls and a delight to our souls, but they are ultimately shadows. And Christ is the body that casts the shadow. Okay, so we've been through this timeline thing. So Jesus wasn't born in Nazareth until centuries after the law came to be, right? Like thousands of years before Jesus was born, Moses received the law. Okay, that's indisputable. But Colossians has already made clear that the entire universe was actually created through Christ before he was born in Nazareth, right? That it was all created through Christ. We don't have to reconcile the timelines. We don't have to do that. But understand that everything we know about God has always been fully reflected through Christ. Anything that we've ever known about God has always been fully reflected through Christ. Christ is the sturdy body from which all good instruction and wisdom finds its source, the body that casts the shadow. All right, we're going we're gonna to keep leaning into this, but let's, let's move ahead. Verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They are puffed up with idle notions of the unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God calls it, causes it to grow. So, I mentioned these Jewish mystics, and you're like, 
Where's the, ev where's the evidence of this mysticism that you keep talking about? Well, here's the business of the mysticism. This business about the worship of angels and detailed descriptions of their visions, right? These mystics are, not, are guilty not only of exhibiting, but delighting in false humility. Delighting in false humility. Not just having false humility, that's one thing, but delighting in it, saying, ha, ha, isn't it great how falsely humble I am? It's like a, a next level of false humility. False humility is no different than arrogance, I would argue. There's no difference between false humility and arrogance. It's merely arrogance dressed up as humility with a costume on. Pretending to be humble in order to puff oneself up. False humility actually can get you some cultural cachet in a place like the church where humility is valued as a virtue, right? As something that is important. It's good to be humble. So where are you going to pretend to be humble? Maybe right here at church, right? But false humility is just arrogance dressed up in a different way. So we must be discerning. And it's hard to know exactly what Paul means by the worship of angels here. Many scholars believe that this group of folks would, would deprive themselves of food and other things in order to experience something like angel-like worship. That they would somehow enter into the heavenly realms. That they would talk then in great detail and at great length about what they have seen in this high, heightened state, a very mystical experience or encounter with God. And I want to be clear here that fasting and experiencing a deep connection with God, even a mystical connection with God, is not in itself a bad thing. And I don't think the passage says that that's a bad thing. But what is a bad thing, in Paul's estimation and my own, is accompanying that experience with false humility and using it to puff up the self and say that I'm better than you because I had this experience and you didn't. And if you don't have this experience, you don't get to be part of me and, and, and my crew of people who have had this amazing and wonderful experience. Setting oneself or a group apart as extra holy or extra worthy or somehow morally, morally superior because of their mystical experiences, that is what Paul wants to root out of this church right now. And when you do, take these, these religious encounters and make them falsely humble. They prove verse 19. But they're losing connection, that they are losing connection from Christ himself. Setting one faction of the body apart from another, holding one up as more pure or holy, one threatens the vitality and life and health of the whole body. There's absolutely no room for this sort of hierarchy within the body of Christ. It gets Paul pretty fired up. To elevate one group of Christians over another is to sever limbs from the body of Christ and to cut off any possibility of growth. It's a mutilation of the body. At least that's how I interpret verse 19. So let's finish out chapter 2, and we'll come back and reflect on how relentlessly practical this passage is for Riverside and any other modern-day expression of the church. So, verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belonged to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules which have to do with things that are de destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. 
Okay. This is not the first time in Colossians we've seen this phrase, elemental spiritual forces of this world. And I think Paul bringing out that phrase again puts an emphasis on the waywardness of this mystical sect, these people that are holding the church to some standard that they shouldn't be held to. So you can see the new moon festival and the Sabbath in the Old Testament law, right? All that stuff exists there, and they have not been abolished by Christ. But in addition to a false humility about that sort of stuff and a false humility about mystical experiences, now Paul is accusing this group of submitting to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, which we don't know really exactly what that means, but it, that doesn't sound good, right? <laughs> we don't know exactly what it means, but it is a belonging to the world, an acceptance of base-level worldliness rooted in some kind of teaching or pagan practice or anchoring in the literal elements of fire and earth and water and wind. And I want to point out that the worldliness, and that's what Paul is talking about here, worldliness is a prohibitive worldliness. The worldliness is the thing that's saying, don't do this, don't touch that, don't taste that. Worldliness prohibits. This is what Paul is saying. Worldliness is prohibiting handling, tasting, and touching. So, for some of us, that might be like a major shift in our brains from the way we grew up, perhaps, right? For many of us, the way of godliness, the way of godliness was the thing that prohibited touching, tasting, or handling, right? Anybody, anybody grow up this way? That if you wanted to be godly, you needed to not touch this not taste this, not handle this, right? Can, can you think of examples from your life, perhaps? Yes. And what I'm saying is that most of us, maybe, were raised in a family or church setting that bought into this worldliness on some level. But almost always out of a fear of becoming worldly, right? We set these limits and say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, because we don't want to become worldly, but Paul says, actually those limits themselves are the worldliness. Hmm. This is getting into scary territory, I understand. What Paul says here challenges our thinking. It challenges my thinking. That there are people who are saying that in order to be godly, you must follow very specific rules. Deprive yourself. And that that is where godliness comes from. Right? That's what's happening in the church in Colossae. For these people, godliness consists of depriving the self and being strictly pure in a religious sense. Depriving yourself really feels like you're doing something, right? Doesn't it? When you deprive your, when you, like, you really wanted that piece of cake and you said no. That felt, that felt like I really, I sacrificed something there, right? I mean, it was available, it was free, and I just said no. Like, I've been a good boy today, right? That feels good. Maybe not as good as actually eating the cake. I don't know, but, you know, depending on where you're at, right? Depriving ourselves. But depriving ourselves might actually feel like we're taking up our cross and following Jesus, right? And we are called to take up our cross and follow Jesus. And we are called to deprive ourselves, right? But the problem comes in when we hold everybody else to the same standard. Because look at verse 23. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom 
saying no to all this stuff. It, it, it has an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. I think this is where, what we've been getting at the whole time. Depriving yourself has the appearance of wisdom and can feel very worshipful. But Paul levels a lot of critiques at this posture toward faith. He calls it false humility. He calls it puffing yourself up. He calls it a loss of connection to the body. He calls it belonging to the world. He calls it being worldly. But this last bit adds that not only is it all those things, it's also ineffective. It also doesn't work. And it's ineffective in the way that you would expect it to actually work and be helpful. All the rules and regulations and deprivations lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So, I don't know if, I do know actually, sorry. I don't know if anybody, I was going to say, I don't know if anybody in this room has ever struggled or battled against some type of sensual indulgence, but I do know that. Because I'm in this room, right? And when, I think all of us have, right? We've all struggled or battled against some type of sensual indulgence. Substance abuse, lust and objectification of people, unhealthy relationship with food, some technology addiction. So many different things, but you, you probably relate to what Paul is, says here. That setting rules and boundaries and summoning all your willpower and inner strength and punishing yourself, all of those things may actually be effective or appear to be effective in short spurts. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. You come to realize that no matter how many rules you put in place, as long as you continue to want to indulge, you eventually will. Right? As long as you want to indulge, you eventually will. Right? You've probably experienced that. Like, I've, been, I, I, I've done really good for seasons and seasons, but as long as I was just depending on my own willpower, my own strength, my own rules, it lacks any value. The rules aren't bad. I want to say that right now. Setting rules is not bad. Setting boundaries is not bad. Setting boundaries, particularly in areas of addiction, might actually save your life, okay? It's important to have these things in place. But they themselves will not change your heart. Christ alone can change your heart. The body that casts the shadow. Christ is the only one who can actually transform your heart. To actually restrain sensual indulgence. Actually transform you to be a person who no longer wants to Indulge. Christ alone can do that. I said this is practical teaching. It may, it may not have seemed like it at first, but I think this, this bit is pretty practical, right? Christ can transform, and only Christ can transform our hearts. But I want to come back to a couple other things that this passage teaches and can be practical for us as a body. And the first one is this. We are a body, Riverside. We are a body united in Christ Jesus. Amen? That's what we're invited. That's what, invite, what unites us. We come to the table every single week to embody 
and to be reminded of that very thing, that we are one body in Christ. And to be a body united in Jesus Christ and his kingdom, the one through whom all things were created, remember? The one through whom all things are being redeemed, that Jesus. That means that we build our identity in Jesus and that we are companions of all people who follow Jesus. And we do all that we can to make space for Jesus followers from different cultural and denominational backgrounds to come to fellowship and to be on mission together, right? It's a beautiful thing. It's huge. It's one of the things I love about Riverside. One of the reasons I was so excited to become a pastor here and continue to be excited to be your pastor moving forward. That this is a body that is about the kingdom of God and I think has always been about the kingdom of God very, very intentionally. And because we do build our identity and our unity around Jesus and Jesus alone, that means that we do not build our collective identity on non-essential matters. This is not like an easy thing because the Bible doesn't always clearly label this is essential and this is non-essential. <laughs> Sometimes it's pretty clear, right? Some passages are pretty clearly essential, but not everything is labeled. So it's not always, it's not always clear. And what's essential to me might not be essential to you, right? It's not easy. It's not easy to do that, but neither are most things that are worth doing, right? Most things worth doing aren't easy. But here we are, doing it, and I love that. The way Riverside holds together, keeping the main thing the main thing, I think, is a beautiful thing. And I hope that this passage and this teaching continues to guide us in that way. It's also beautiful when we disagree in love, and continue to remain in fellowship together. That is a beautiful thing. The way we care deeply about specific things, the way we individually give our time and our efforts and resources to things that we are passionate about because of the gospel. But then we can also admit that some of those specifics are just mere shadows of Christ and that our unity is on the body that casts the shadow. The one whose glory or approval matters. The only one whose glory and approval matters whatsoever. We unite on Christ, on him. The challenge is, and the challenge will always be, for us to keep our eyes on the body that casts the shadow. To keep our eyes on him and him alone. To keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. To keep our eyes on Jesus we have no option other than to fight against distractions, against false humility, against elemental forces of the world, against rules and restrictions that would have no power anyway. We are not saved, well, we are not saved by grace only to be sanctified by our own effort. Right? We're not saved by grace so that we can actually be sanctified by our own effort, by, by our own willpower. To think such a thing is to undercut the whole gospel, and that's why Paul is so fired up with the Colossian church. The whole thing is Jesus, not just the entry point. Jesus isn't just how we get into the kingdom. Jesus is the kingdom. We don't just leave him behind and say, well, no, I'll take it from here. Guess who's the king on the throne? Is it me? Oh, it's the kingdom of who? The kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God. He is the king. We are saved by grace, and we are sanctified by grace. All is grace. 
Forward progress can spring only out of our trust in God's work in us through Christ. So let's trust together. As one body, one body, from one body, the one that casts the shadow. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that challenges us, that strengthens us, that encourages us. We thank you, Lord, for the clarity that comes when we study your word together. When we see Jesus front and center in every passage of both testaments because you are the body that casts the shadow. Lord, help us see you today. Help us see your work in our lives. And help us be united in you, in you alone. As we come to the table together, may we come because our hearts have been transformed by you, Jesus. And may we, be, may we come because we have been made one body in Jesus. We come from different walks of life. We come from different backgrounds. We come from different places. Even just, we come from different experiences this past week. We come in different moods. We come with different personalities. And we come as one body. Because you make us one. Your grace makes us one. Your life makes us one. Your kingdom makes us one. In the name of our one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Riverside Church. For more resources, visit riverside.church.